The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, April 21st, and I am your host, Vince Rocco. We are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios here in Times Square in New York. I will be talking to our panel a little later on in the program, but first... Uh, Coming up, let's get ready for the Hamptons, the infamous playground of the rich and famous, as it remains the hotbed of social entertainment and status. That all continues. You can learn a lot about the fortunes of wealthy Wall Streeters from the Hamptons real estate market uh, that they play in. The Hamptons are a group of villages about 100 miles from Manhattan near the eastern tip of the Long Island Sound. It is where most New York City's wealthy and some of the world's richest people either rent or maintain summer homes. That makes the Hamptons' rental prices a good barometer for the financial health of the 1%. We always talk about that 1% of the uber-wealthy, if not for the rest of the U.S. economy. The cost of a Hamptons rental has become a bit of a proxy for the fortunes of Wall Street professionals, international jet-setters, and other members of that 1% crowd. The median price for a Hamptons rental this year is about $45,000 for summer. That's the median price. And that doesn't include utilities nor the salaries of housekeepers and gardeners that these renters are also required to pay, pool boys, etc. To put that in perspective, the median household income in the U.S. was about $51,939 in 2013, and that according to the U.S. Census Bureau. The number of homes sold in that part of New York in 2014 jumped by nearly 50%, according to Cranes. The thought is that the flurry of high-end purchases will likely drive up rents even further as owners try to see how much return they can squeeze from their investments. Other popular destinations to watch for in order to gauge the current sentiment of wealthy Americans include Cape Cod and Nantucket in Massachusetts, Newport in Rhode Island, and Southern Europe. But today, our focus is back to the Hamptons. Joining me is a very successful Hamptons real estate agent. Brian Midlam has over over a decade of experience selling real estate out in the Hamptons. He's one of the East End's top producing brokers. He ranks among the top five in the Hamptons and top 35 in his company. He works for Corcoran uh, Group Real Estate. Good morning, Brian, and thank you for being here. Morning, Vince. Thanks for having me. All right, so the kickoff to the Hampton season was a little slow by a blanket of several feet of snow. We talked about this just before we went on the air. Canceled showings led to a slowdown, but some brokers powered through the weather and found success. But despite the slow start on the whole, brokers are saying that the market is performing well so far this year. Is it? Has it turned around now since the weather has completely turned around? You know, certainly the weather didn't help, uh, usually because of, you know, we're in a resort market, so... Most people that buy 
in the spring season want to close by Memorial Day. So in order to do that with a mortgage, et cetera, you really need to be in in January, February, March, and April. Well, January, February, and March were covered in snow. Um, so, you know, we didn't see quite as many people braving the weather, but people that did, the good part about that is you know that they're serious. Nobody else is going to come through and come out here unless they're really serious about a purchase. And um, in the markets that I follow out here, the segments that I work the most in, I didn't see, on paper, I didn't see any detriment uh, caused by the weather. Uh, the sales were on par or better than last year. As you say, people who come out there, you know, in strong winter months are serious buyers. The same thing here in Manhattan. They're not going to be traipsing around the streets unless they are serious. But uh, did you find, though, that they came out as many uh, as, say, the year before? And how do they get there? I mean, obviously, eastern tip of Long Island, are they coming from New York City or are they coming from all over the world? Mostly from New York City. And uh, no, definitely not as many people. In fact, you know, I would joke with my wife that if I got an appointment request that I would drop everything because, you know, (laughs) people were actually here you run to that because you know, again, that if they're crazy enough to come out here in four feet of snow, then they're serious. So, But definitely not nearly as many people coming through the door as years past. Right. Sales prices seem to be also higher in most uh, and the most uh, active sector of the market has shifted upward to the 2 to $5 million range from the $1 to $3 million range. Why is this happening? How is this happening? You know, over the past, uh, let's say, two to three years, new construction has been huge. And the new construction that has mostly been built is north of the highway. So obviously south of the highway is more expensive. So north of the highway builders were able to get land for good prices. And there's just been a flurry of new builds. I mean, everywhere you look, there's a new house going up. And that's about that range of where new builds are right now, two to five million. And that's where they've been selling over the past two two years or so. So, um, So that in my opinion, is probably why that's been the strongest market, because they were all selling before they were even finished. So you've got these homes that are framed, and they're already going to contract you know, for, for these big numbers. So it, it drove up that, um, that part of the market pretty strongly. So you're saying basically north of the highway, though, in any particular town uh, or, or, or all of them? In, well, it tended to be more in Southampton, Watermill, Bridgehampton mm-hmm. areas, mm-hmm. because those are the areas where north of the highway you can sort of be among the farm fields or, or, or places that are still will command those types of prices. Didn't see it as much in out towards East Hampton, Amagansett, but there still were a number more than usual in those areas, East Hampton, Amagansett, but the majority, I would say, were centered around Watermill, South, and Bridge. Gotcha. So how has that affected, how has the new development growth affected the resales, the traditional resales out there that have always been the staple of the, uh, of the beach <clears throat> towns and the Hamptons community? How has resales um, been affected? Well, I think, again, this is just my opinion, but I think it's kind of pulled everything else up because you've got people now who have homes that might have been worth one five. And you've got people spending this big money for these new builds, and they say, well, these guys are getting four or five million. Now I'm worth one six or one seven. So it's kind of pulled everybody up, and what we're starting to see is the disappearing of under a million. It's harder and harder to find a home under a million dollars, which sounds crazy, but, you know, that is now our affordable range. So 
people who used to come out in the 600, 700, 800 range are having trouble finding things because everything has been kind of pulled up just slightly to the point where it's been hard to find that segment. At the very top of the Hamptons real estate game, some homes jump on and off the market for a decade or more until they finally land a buyer. Why is this? I mean, we see this here in New York recently with the Uber uh, Uber wealthy, the pr- higher priced apartments. They tend to take longer now to sell. Why does that happen sometimes out east, where you know homes you know go on and off the market for a very long period of time, and sometimes it's <clears throat> years before they sell? Are the prices out of out of control of the sellers unrealistic, or is it just yeah, you know, that price point? Well, I think you have a mix of. For starters, there's not a huge buyer pool for let's say fifty million dollar houses, so you don't have a lot of people vying for those options, and then you have sellers who d- normally don't need to sell. So there's no there's no pressure. They're selling for whatever their reasons are, and often that reason is just because this is what I want for, and I'll wait till I get that. Um, so that's the higher price things. But it, you know, I started almost 12 years ago now, and honestly, there are homes on the market today that were on when I started. Um, they've been on and off, but a lot of a lot of sellers again because they don't need to sell. They they tend to what I call chase the market, and they just right. continue to sort of stay above the market, wherever that market is. So they do adjust their price, but they're just constantly above where, where it is. And even though this is a resort area and, and driven by emotional purchases, New Yorkers still want good value, and they're not going to overpay by that much for something. Brian, you just mentioned 12 years. Wow, I didn't believe it was that long. I know, <laughs> Cong- I know. Cong- congratulations. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Um, the high-end market is still buzzing about Barry Rosenstein's $147 million East End purchase, which set the record for the priciest home in the country when it sold last year. Has anything recently eclipsed that sale? I mean, now I'm beginning to hear something recently listed for, I think, $140 million. Anything eclipsed that sale? It's amazing. Nothing has actually sold that has eclipsed that, eclipsed that sale. And, and a lot of times these types of purchases, although – you know, there are a number of brokers who, quote-unquote, may have been involved in that, and, you know, I had some information. It's Those sales a lot of times tend to be so quiet that you don't know about it until it's sold and closed, and even then, a lot of times you'll have trouble finding out who was even involved in the deal. So nothing that we know of, but honestly, I mean, the media often finds out about those things before majority of the brokers. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, rentals for a minute. A local brokerage said that their firm's average rental price is up about 19% so far over 2014. I also read that Hampton's rentals at the highest levels are in excess of a million dollars for the Memorial Day through Labor Day summer season. Now, as an agent myself, I think this is awesome, but how is this possible? I mean, why, let me ask you this, why as a local, you know, um, successful broker out there, why would anybody spend a million dollars for a rental season when I guess you can turn around and buy something? Who are these renters? And are, and are these prices a million dollars in some cases for a summer season accurate? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, there's, there's a number of different people that rent these things. Um, I've rented a few, not quite that high, but a few big ones before. And I, I asked my buyer specifically, you know, why wouldn't you buy? And the answer was interesting and something that I've sort of carried with me. He said, listen... I make over $100 million a year. 
So for me to rent something for, let's say, half a million is what percent of my income, you know? Mm. And he said, now apply that to what you make in a year. Would you go rent something for the whole summer for that percent of your income? And I thought, well, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's no maintenance, you know? They don't have to worry about, are the pipes freezing? Did the person go over to check this and that? They go in, they enjoy themselves for a very small percent of their income, and they move on. You know, and we've also heard about, you know, Russian sort of oil people like that that come over and it's it's just more of like a playground they'll come you know i've heard as much as a million for a month and they'll come and they'll use it and then they're done and um it's all relative you know to you and me it would be like a rental for for much less than that and uh it's just relative it's 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 a percent of the income so but in general, the rental market, yes, you're right, the, the average numbers are up. But in my opinion, the actual activity is down, and there's a number of factors that go into that. When does the actual rental season start out there for you guys? I mean, we're into April, so I would assume that you're well underway. But when does it actually start? When do people start coming out there to look at these, whether they're very high-priced uh, rentals or, or what I call average normal rentals? When does that um, start? We, we have kind of three rental seasons. We have the really early birds who come in October, November of the, season, the year before and just really want to tie something down. You have the normal people, which would, let's say, January and February, maybe even to March, who, you know, again, they want to pre-plan, but they're not too far in advance. And then you have the last-minute people who decide last minute, you know what, we really want to be out there. And for all those people, there's still plenty of inventory because you have so many homes and so many owners willing to rent um, and that are flexible um, if you're willing to be flexible with your time frame, et cetera. Well, I was going to ask you with the last-minute people, and there's always that even here in New York City, are the owners of these houses willing to discount because they're still on the market and they want to rent for the season? So are they willing to be a little more flexible in their asking prices? Yeah, you know, it's case-specific. I would say in general, yes, they are. But you also have the owners who say, you know what, if I'm not getting this amount of money, I'm just going to use it because it's not worth the wear and tear of someone I don't know being in there. So certain, yeah, certain people who have the home and they need that it, that cash each year to run the house, let's say, yeah, they're, they're willing to play a little bit with the number. But other people will say, listen, it's take it or leave it because we'll use it or we'll let friends use it instead. All right. It's an interesting fact that three-fifths of the incorporated village of Sag Harbor is located in Southampton, while two-fifths of the village of Sag is in East Hampton. True to its name, Division Street is the dividing line between the two Hamptons towns, each with their own sensibility, real estate markets, and tourist attractions. But Sag Harbor attracts a different kind of buyer than East Hampton and South Hampton. Can you tell us what that is about? I happen to love Sag Harbor. My favorite town out there is Sag, but what, what is that about? Yeah, it's my favorite, too, which is why I live there. I live, you know, 200 feet from Division Street. I'm on the East Hampton side. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the thing about Sag Harbor, it's a lot of things that go into it. And you have the East Hampton side and the South Hampton side. But there's a lot of different pockets, a lot of different areas that you can live, and a lot of different price points, too. You know, you can still get a home for relatively inexpensive if you're willing to be a bit further from town or in certain areas. So it, it attracts a lot, a big demographic. So there's the, the first part is a big demographic. And then it's one of the only areas out here that really offers a year-round feeling. It doesn't, you don't feel like the sidewalks roll up on Labor Day. You have everything a normal town would have. A lot of other towns out here, you feel like, well, there's nothing open past, you know, September 15th. 
So you kind of get, you know, there's a phenomenal school system. Matt Lauer brings his kids out here, you know, and that's saying something, although I'm biased because my wife works there. Um, (laughs) You know, you have, it's the only village out here on the water. Now, it's not the ocean, but it's the only village on the water. Every other village, every other main street, you know, you're at least a mile or two from the water. I mean, even in Montauk, where you feel like you're, you're connected to the ocean, you can't really be on Main Street and and at the ocean, um, but Sag Harbor has that. You can walk down to the wharf. You can walk over the bridge to North Haven and be on the water. It just has a really good mix of all that, and then you kind of take into effect the historic district where you have all these modern amenities, but the homes look like they're original from 1700s, and that charm is just sort of brings it all back together and it just makes it a really unique place to be. All right, we have to take a break, but first you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back, everybody, with Brian Midlam from the Corcoran Group out in East Hampton, New York. And we are talking this morning about the uh, Hamptons market. Brian, so Cooper's Neck Lane in Southampton was recently named one of the top 15 most expensive streets in America. This one surprised me, actually. According to Zillow, the street ranked number eight on the list with a median home value of $11.87 million. Cooper's Neck Lane is the only New York street among the top 15 that made the list. What is so special about this? I mean, I know the street, and I think it's you know incredible, but what makes it so special that it's the only street out of all of New York to hit that top 15 list? I mean, you've been there, so, you you know, aesthetically, it's one of the most beautiful streets probably in the country. You Mm -hmm. know, it ends at the beach, and it's not a long street, so you have mostly big estates. It's all the estate district, and so if you want to get a home there, it's it's always been big numbers, and with the new, you know, sort of high-end market, it's gotten tougher and tougher, and, you know, you have to pay more and more to be in a place like that. So, you know, and it also combines with the fact that, to be that close to the ocean, but also to be able to walk into town. Um, 
Yeah. That's been such a huge thing in all of our towns, to be able to have access to both. Whether people actually walk or not is another question, but to know that you can has added so much value over the past five to ten years. Well, I was going to mention, I was going to ask you rather to compare and contrast that to Lily Pond Lane, which is also my one of my favorites. But I think the difference there is you really can't walk to town from Lily Pond. I mean, you could, but it's, it's not, not unless you really love walking. Um, if you really yeah, love walking. Li- yeah, I mean, Lily Pond, you're probably looking at a 20, 25-minute walk to town at least. Yeah. And um, But it's still, I mean, Lily Pond is one of the next most beautiful streets in the country. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's a selection of streets that you just, between their aesthetic beauty, the size of the homes, and their proximity, it's just you got to pay big money to be there because there's only so many. You know, after all these years, and I think I say this, you know, all the time, there's still something to me that is very uh, magical. I always use the word magical about uh, that neck of the woods where you live and work. It's just the Hamptons or something else. A Robert A.M. Stern design house in Montauk has sat on the market for roughly two years. For the listeners out there, Stern is a very famous New York City architect and has designed hundreds of properties, including buildings here in New York. Now the house is sold for roughly its $8.2 million asking price. The 2,500-square-foot house sits on one and a half acres but had struggled to find a buyer. It saw, one point, it saw a $1.2 million price cut over the last two years, according to Curb. I remember back to the day when I used to summer in the Hamptons every year. The thought of Montauk was, you know, very kind of honky-tonk. What's happening in Montauk? It seems to be turning around in a tremendous way. Yeah, I mean, I would say in the last, since I've started, it's been the town that's done a complete 180. Um, You know, it used to be very, you know, a lot of fishermen, very, you know, local people, and not as many people had summer homes there. Maybe a lot of people from Long Island, but New York York City buyers didn't tend to go there. It was too far, et cetera. Um, I would say, honestly, the impetus for that was when the Surf Lodge came in, and there was now sort of a trendy spot for young and whatnot New Yorkers to go, and that started to change the landscape of the town and people started to realize what it was which is super laid back you know if you want to be on vacation montauk is the epitome you're not worried about going to social events and things charities and stuff it's like you know you're there you're at the beach and that that started it and as that started more people started to purchase as that momentum gained prices went up and it sort of snowballed from there to where it is today where, you know, I, I would love to buy, for example, a, a place in, in Montauk, and the land values alone have gone up probably more than 50 to 70 percent in the last five years. That, that's, what I've, that's what I've noticed, so <laughs> I guess I have to re, rethink my honky-tonk um, term for Montauk. I actually like it out there, but it just was very, as you described it, you know, very kind of Cape Cod, not very um, Hamptons-like, but things are changing. I asked you this last year, but, you know, I'll ask you again, and I just referred to myself earlier, but why are the Hamptons so captivating to so many people um, in our tri-state area and, and really around the world? What is it about the Hamptons that's so captivating for our listeners you know, who are around the yeah, world, by the way? It's, well, it's a microcosm of New York City. I mean, where else can you be where you have so much culture, uh, social, charitable events, phenomenal food. You're on the ocean. You're on the bay. There's hiking and walking and biking trails, nature, et cetera. And you're two hours from what, what I would say is the best city in the world. It's, there's no other place you can say that has all of that. So that combination of, of amenities, as far as I know, doesn't exist. 
and the beauty of the place because they don't allow chain stores. They don't allow, you know, certain homes to be built. There's an aesthetic that's kept. They preserve the land so the farm fields remain the bucolic view. I mean, that, that just doesn't exist anywhere else. And to be two hours from Manhattan and to have all that, it's, I don't think it'll ever change. And you as a local who live out there now for many, many years, um, could you see yourself living anyplace else? I mean, you just mentioned two hours away is the greatest city in the world, which is New York City. Could you ever do that? Maybe someday, part part of the year. Um, I think, you know, part of me will always need to be here. Between the beauty of here, being able to go to Manhattan, it's it's it would be hard for me to replicate that. I think maybe during the winter I wouldn't mind a month or two somewhere a bit <laughs> different. You know, either much warmer or embrace the snow and go skiing. But um, no, I don't. I don't see that happening. Is there anything in particular trending now in the Hamptons? I mean, uh, real estate wise or socially, anything particularly different out there this season or last season in this season that uh, we talk about trends these days? Seen a lot of people actually. Um, sort of leaning towards condos, which is really new for me because it was always my opinion that you come from Manhattan, you want to have a yard, you want to have, you know, a pool and things like that. But between the watch case in Sag Harbor and a couple other new condo complexes and even the older complexes that are quote-unquote affordable, we're seeing some people, some, you know, segments of the market leaning towards that. And you have, you know, baby boomers who are getting to a certain age where they want that that ease of use. They don't want to mow the lawn and, and clean the pool. And then you have sort of even young, trendy people who say, I want to hop off the train or the bus in Sag Harbor and I want to walk to my condo here. And I'll pay the maintenance, just take care of everything for me. So that's now, the biggest trend I've seen. Now, are the condos being a part of that new development stuff that you talked about earlier in the, in the, uh, in the program? Uh, are they building condos, or are they just enhancing some of the existing ones that are out there, which there aren't that yeah, many? Yeah, they're built. I mean, the Watchkeys factory in Sag Harbor is right. a, a huge new complex that they are building. In, in, it's been in the process of for many years, but they're really selling now. Um, there's another one in Sag Harbor over um, over on Water Street. Um, those are the only two I know about. I heard of a new one in East Hampton potentially being agreed to. Um, so, yeah, there are new ones, and, and I think that also invigorates the older complexes because people can't necessarily afford the new ones. And they're at a million-plus for a one-bedroom. Right. Um, have, they, have they started closing in that first uh, condo complex in Sag Harbor that you referenced? Because I have some friends who purchased there yeah. a while ago. But yeah, did they start closing? A, a large number of them in contract, and, and so I would assume that a large number have closed as well. And the number that are available is dwindling, so... Okay, the Corcoran Group's fourth quarter market report found that the numbers, uh, the number of Hampton sales dropped about 8% to 565 homes in the last three months of 2014. With that said, the dollar volume of those uh, deals jumped to $1.3 billion from $1 billion. Data for the first quarter of 2015 was not available at press time, but Corcoran's economists said that an unexpected flurry of business fueled by buyers with generous year-end bonuses and uncertainty surrounding interest rates could mean strong numbers for early 2015. We will see how that plays out. Brian, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, All the best in 2015 and lots of success. We will go to break and we're coming right back. Great. Thanks for having me.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, so here's a good one for everybody. Last year, actress Demi Moore began a whisper listing campaign to sell her San Remo triplex for $75 million. The San Remo was on Central Park West on the west side of Manhattan. Now she's taking a more traditional route, and she officially is offering the unit Penthouse 26C for the first time on the market for sale in 25 years. In 1990, Moore purchased the South Tower Penthouse with her former husband, Bruce Willis, from the Saturday Night Fever producer, Robert Stigwood. That, according to the New York Times. Moore had also picked up a two-bedroom, two-bath lobby-level masonette, which is included in the listing today. She currently pays more than $20,000 a month in maintenance fees for both units. I mean, the rest of America, get over that one. $20,000 a month just in maintenance fees. Good Whoa. for her. Good the for triplex her. has roughly 7,000 square feet of interior space and 1,500 square feet of wraparound terraces with views of the uh, park, river, and cityscape vistas. I'll take it. If Moore gets her $75 million asking price, it would set a record for an Upper West Side co-op and more than double the in-house record of just a couple of months ago, of $26.4 million at the San Remo. Moore told the New York Times, and I quote, I'm spending the majority of my time in my other homes, and this apartment is too magnificent not to be lived in full time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Local broker to the stars, Adam Maudlin, God bless Adam, the president of the Maudlin Group, is handling the listing. So you know we we will be reporting the progress on that one going forward. $75 $75 million. Good morning to Niall Lundgren. Good morning to Ivy Ray. Good morning Hi. to Deborah Hoffman. Good morning. Good morning, Vince. Hello, Hello everybody. And cats and kittens in Radioland. <laughs> <laughs> and birds and flies and whatever else. And mon- no, that was monkeys. The that was the tagline. <laughs> I remember that. That's fantastic. I forgot who, but it was tagline. All right, so $75 million for a co-op at the San Remo. I mean, I looked at the floor plan. I looked at all the pictures. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge space. But it's in a building on Central Park West, which is also, you know, a, a fabulous storied boulevard, but $75,000, $75 million. How did you feel about the space personally? Well, I mean, you know, your thinking is a little skewed there because if you're thinking <laughs> of the, the, the purchase price or the selling price of $75 million, what's ever big enough to, to, to meet that number? Um, it's a nice space. It's, it looks like it's awkwardly laid out a little bit, but mm-hmm. – 
I, I, I'm, I, you know, I could live in it. It's beautiful, but um, I think it's got four exposures. But I'm thinking about the price. And I'm wondering who's going to buy it. Meaning, yes, Demi Moore, and when she bought it with Bruce Willis, they were celebrities. But at the time, they were not the kind of celebrities that paparazzi really followed around. So who has that kind of money? A captain of industry, a celebrity. Um, it is a co-op, so they may be a little funny when it comes to a foreign national who they wonder how they made their money. So I think it'll be interesting to see who actually purchases it. I'm not that wow, wow, wow about the price. I want to see how the whole process goes on this mm-hmm. one. This is what I was thinking about because yeah. it's a very good point. Who, mostly because it is a co-op and, yeah. a, and a white glove co-op on the Upper West Side yeah. on Central Park West, it's going to be interesting to see yeah. who the co-op board's going to. First of all, as Brian said earlier in, in the Hamptons interview, you know, when you're getting to these Uber prices, you know, the market is smaller, so there are not mm-hmm. that many people available to spend that kind of money. Now, it's seventy-five million dollars on Central Park West. That market is also very small. Mm-hmm. So the people who have the money to buy that may not be qualified or the board may not want – not qualified, but they the – Financially board may not qualified. Want They're financially qualified, but the board may not want them for whatever right. reason. Right, like the sport figures, the rap artists. I mean not to, uh, well, no, just, no, it's, it's not more, to pick out groups. No, but, no, no. But it's more first, – first of all, they're not protected classes. Sports figures, then, yeah. so we don't have to worry about fair right. housing. Yeah. But it's more a matter of, and I mentioned this before, the paparazzi hanging out. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants that. When yeah. we're taking our ch- our small children to school in the morning, we don't want to be greeted by flashbulbs and screams and people pushing and shoving. Yeah. It's the paparazzi factor. Yeah, that's I it's not you. the individuals. It's not, and then you get people so. like Madonna. Not to pick on Madonna, but I think she actually was turned down in that building many years ago. It was the paparazzi uh, factor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so it almost always they is. They have the money, yep. but it's the it's the the paparazzi mm-hmm. factor and the fans and all the fans camping out. It's yeah, all the of the above. So it's you know, it really severely limits the 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 audience for that particular listing. And so we it, call it. Could we say that it will likely end up being quiet money, <laughs> not money, mm-hmm. but quiet people. Well, we, in terms we, of people that have that money but aren't in well, the not pop, in, in, not in pop culture, yes, with unbelievable fans and paparazzi, so it's going to be well, we're likely talking, that style be. of money. But it's yep. also the Ghostbuster building, yeah. So is that you know? something? Yeah, it certainly is <laughs> funny, interesting. All right, moving on. Part of the West Village's charm, West Village in downtown Manhattan, comes from row upon row of 19th century townhomes. But every so often, a modern style. On a modern take on that style can be spotted. Uh, for example, an all-glass uh, redone townhouse in the middle of an 18th century, 19th century townhouse. What are the consequences? And we talked about this a little bit before the show in the green room, but who allows this? Who 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 approves this? Well, we do live in the United States and we are a free market society. That portion of the West Village or many portions of the city are not landmarked, meaning they are not under the Landmark Commission. So yes, neighbors could stand in front of the apartment and jump up and down or the townhouse and jump up and down with big signs and, we don't want you here, we don't want you. But honestly, if someone purchases it, they could pretty much do whatever they want as long as it's according to building codes. And many times those people who will do something like that, there's a huge ego factor there. It's a lot of, look at me, look at me. And they will look for neighborhoods where they can do that. What does that do to the what does that do to the neighborhood though? I mean, where that you. or that block when you're walking mm-hmm. down the street. Yeah. I've seen, you know, Vince and I were talking about it before. I've seen those, you know, glass 
town, new modern townhouses, mm-hmm. you know, where you have 18th century, uh, you know, townhouses just lining the block. And, you know, frankly, it, it takes away, I feel like, from the charm of the West Village. I couldn't agree with you yes. more. And I almost, it's akin to a prayer. <laughs> and I'll come out with it now that I hope in the few areas we have in New York City that largely have not been affected by the huge developments, some of which pay respect for their surroundings and some of which don't, my sincere hope is that the village gets to remain <laughs> what it is because it's one of the mm-hmm. most charming, untouched neighborhoods in Manhattan. And I just hope at some point people, developers, the money folks have uh, some respect left, some discernment in their in their action. I, I agree. I mean, I, I've gone on record here on the show many times over the past year that it is my favorite neighborhood yeah. in all of Manhattan. And if you know, someday I can drag myself down there in one last move, uh, that's where it'll be. But, you know, it's not unlike many other neighborhoods, even uptown. I mean, I walk through the streets on the Upper West Side where I currently live. And, you know, you'll have these beautiful rows of townhouses and you'll have this ungodly white brick building from the 60s smack in the middle of of them. And I think, okay, not to offend anybody who lives in white brick buildings, but (laughs) oh, my God. I mean, that's an atrocity. Actually, there's a historical factor with the white brick buildings. Um, Every time you see a white brick building, I would say 90 percent of the time – They were built in the 60s because they were seen as the places to live, much like the glass towers are now. And 90% of the time, it was urban renewal. They were tearing down the cold water tenements, some in the middle of the block, many in the West 90s and the East 90s. These were all places that were deemed unsuitable for anyone to live. And because that was the hot thing to have in the 60s. The style of the time. That's right. So So it has a historical value. It does. It's historical. And- I've mentioned it, I think, on the show before that I happen to love the white brick buildings because they're plain vanilla boxes right. and you put your own charm right. in. What are, what are some of the ramifications of a white brick building? Because I've tried to do a deal in there and the attorneys um, on the deal squashed it because – representing my, myself and the buyer um, – because the, uh, the brick apparently absorb water and it's not mm-hmm. good for local law 11 – um, so I, I'm curious as tell to the audience what local law 11 is. So yeah. every what is it? Every 10 years, uh, it's from my understanding that well, buildings have to be repointed. Well, no, no. Mm-hmm. Every every five years, they have to be five inspected. Years. Yeah, inspected. Mm-hmm. Pointing lasts about 30 years. What pointing is is checking the grout, checking all the bricks to make sure it's not deteriorating. Yeah. Now, what most people don't realize is. Here in Manhattan, we are really close to the ocean, and the ocean is salt water. With all the storms and things we get, that salt water in the wind and in the rain, it does. It erodes the the mortar, and that's the thing with the white brick buildings is it was cool and funky, and let's try a new way of doing things in the 60s. But those bricks are very porous. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I could think of four buildings. They do. Yes, they do. There are four buildings on the Upper West Side that recently spent the money, which is more expensive than repointing, to take down all of the white bricks and put up red red bricks. Wow. Which was major. There's a there's a building on 72nd Street East between I think first and second that didn't take down the existing white brick. They just bricked over for double protection because they are Mm. very porous. And they are problematic. And but. that's something to consider too when, when you're looking to purchase white brick buildings because you can be hit with an assessment mm-hmm. that can be significant. Mm-hmm. I believe it was two Fifth Avenue Absolutely. right off of uh, – Two Fifth Avenue. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. One had, that was the deal that, I was, that we were trying to go for. <clears throat> Washington and Square Park. it got hit with a crazy assessment, like $1,000 assessment. I, I don't know if – And that's a very unit, big building. Big. Yes. Very, very yeah. big building. That's why, wow. We, so yeah. it's expensive. 
All right, Union Square is about as centrally located as any neighborhood can be in New York City. Seven subway lines converge at the 14th Street Union Square station, and about half a dozen bus lines run through the area. The park at the center of the neighborhood, Union Square Park, is a bustling place, as are the streets around it. On days when the park's green market is open, obviously in the warm weather, about 350,000 pedestrians converge on that area every day. Real estate prices in the area have subsequently risen as well with rents and sales prices registering at rates higher than the city's overall average. What other neighborhoods compare these days? Well, I think just what New York is doing is they're making an overall commitment to public plazas. Mm -hmm. So in New York City, streets take up approximately 25% of the city's land area, and yet outside parks, there are a few places to rest and socialize um, in the city. So you see Herald Square, you know, there's a big revival in the Flatiron with all the new condominiums, one Madison, for example, and um, in a number of different, uh, what is it, 10 Madison Square West. Um, and it's it's just blowing up. Herald Square, Times Square, they're all having these these areas that were one streets where they're making into public plazas. And then around that, it, it creates community where people can sit, rest, socialize, um, and hang out. Ooh, but do I have the other side of that coin? Was it Bloomberg that respo- was responsible for a good percentage of the streets turning into parkways? Yes. yes. Our traffic in New yeah. York City used to be among some of the best in the world for an urban environment. New York was outrageous. I owned cars here forever. I grew up, for those that don't know, I grew up in New York, and I've been here most of my life. Our traffic is ruined. It's ruined for cyclists. It's ruined for regular people with cars, and it is destroyed for cab drivers. And it's because of those damn urban street plazas that we only – we had these consistent – I'll talk fast so I don't take up time on this. But we had these consistent thoroughfares. One of them was Broadway. Yeah, Broadway. Broadway was huge. You can't take a cab going through It's gone. They're gone. Right over here, Broadway is a a mess. It's almost single lane with all the the created parks. Same thing around Times Square. Do you know how many lanes we lost for traffic? The city's ruined. So I'm all for – there are buildings going down and parks being put in. And I think that one of the most important things for us to have, hello, is benches to sit on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've yeah. almost all gone away, and there's movement for those to come back. I guess they don't want people sleeping on them and stuff, so they That's took the them deal. away. Yep. Um, but there will be more park spaces for us to be in. But that urban park thing where they took our streets. But I also think because we live in an urban environment, we live in New York City, and we live in the concrete jungle, you know, to go back to a term that, you know, was coined years ago. You know, when you get these these green areas, these green yeah. outside parks, like in Union Square, I mean, I go through there all the time, and it's kind of interesting when you get off the train, regardless of where I'm heading, you go through the, the outdoor shopping and the, and, the, and the vegetable stands and the fruit stand. It is kind of interesting. I agree that on streets where they, you know, consolidate lanes down to two or one because they want to create all kinds of parks out on the streets. That is a disaster. That's all I was talking about. I, I agree the, with you. The green parks, God but, bless but them. But the green parks, yeah, God bless oh them because God. we here in the city, I live right off of Riverside Park and I have to tell you something, when the weather is nice. You live in it, right? I live in it yep. because you need to be, I, I come from the country, so you need to be outside, you need to be breathing fresh air. I yeah. schedule myself time-wise and route-wise. I walk almost mm-hmm. all the time once it gets consistently warm out. And I do my roots so I can mm-hmm. stop in Bryant or Washington Square or or Union Square or yeah. Central Park. I'm there all the time. Mm-hmm. So. And, and all this makes a lot of sense, but I'm going to speak up as a driver yeah. who drives into Manhattan from a very close suburb every day. I love the green spaces. Yes, it does mess up traffic. The but green again, or the urban spaces both, created with it? Both. 
The urban spaces don't bother mm. me as much because no, because I plan my trips. I have learned the streets. I know where to go, where to avoid. I know how to go on the outskirts if I have to go someplace. And again, we're living in an urban environment. We have the best subway system in the world. Yeah. And yes, it has its problems on days, but I think it's part of being a part of a, a New Yorker and taking the public transportation. Yeah. So, All right, we have to take a break, mm-hmm. but you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and I'm talking to Niall Lundgren, Ivy Ray, and Deborah Hoffman from my panel. Uh, you know, gas leaks are becoming a common problem across Manhattan, and this is very serious. Mm-hmm. The gas was recently turned off at one Lincoln Plaza, a 671-unit uh, apartment tower across from Lincoln Center on the west side of Manhattan, leaving residents without cooking gas, and it's unclear when it will be turned back on. The gas shutdown follows the explosion of an East Village building last month where two people were killed. Con Edison and the building's manager said the shutdown at one Lincoln Plaza was a precautionary measure after a test of the meter room at the building along Broadway near West 64th Street, and it was detected, they detected rather a very small smell of uh, gas. How real is this concern becoming throughout New York City? Now, you know, most of us live in, in the older buildings. I know I certainly live in an older pre-war building built in 1927. We have gas lines. My concern is that the gas lines from the street sometimes to the building are updated because Con Ed is always out there digging. But mm-hmm. no one is really paying attention to the, to the piping <clears throat> within the buildings, and that's where the problems occur. I am becoming increasingly more concerned about these situations. What, you know, what is done now? What can we do with this? And where I will, is Con Ed with all this? I will only say one thing, and I'll make it brief, that we live in a very old city, as all of us know. Yeah. And our infrastructure and our underground structures, it's been known for a long time, are deteriorating. As a few, quite a, 20 years ago, we were very concerned about our bridges because they hadn't been upgraded in a long time. Still Remember they, we still, still are. And they, and they began that work. But we've got the whole subway lines. We've mm-hmm. got all of the gas piping. We've got... It's... Uh, it's a big issue, and it's worthy of your concern. It is. It is worthy of Absolutely. the concern. I think it's really scary. What's the first thing that lets for everyone out there that you should do if you do smell gas? Get the hell out. 
Make your call and leave. Got to call Con Ed. Con Ed Absolutely. Do not call people, your landlord. Do not call, call your the super. Supers. They call the landlord. You have to call yes, Con Ed. I had a really close friend of mine who lives in the East Village ground floor apartment with a tremendous outdoor space. And all of a sudden, it was 6 a.m. He heard the, the door. There's like a secondary egress. He's heard the door get kicked open. He looks in his backyard. There's five firemen running around. So uh, I guess somebody in his building, because of this, you know, called in a panic and then all the fire and then the firemen came into the outdoor space and they were they entered his apartment and were just going through the building. So, you know, the one thing is if you do smell it, absolutely call. But, you know, some people can get jumpy, too. There was apparently there was really no issue that my friend had. He didn't smell gas or anything like that. But somebody might have had their uh, stove turned on and they thought it was something. But it, you know, it's just about being aware and then knowing what to do when you have it, because Buildings, you know, there's a building that exploded in Harlem, yeah. you know, about yeah, less than a year that. ago. Oh, it's terrible. Horrible. Multiple yeah. deaths. You know, something yeah. this just happened in the East yeah. Village Stress as that well. again, Niall. You and, don't call your super. Yep. You don't call your managing agent. You don't call the owner if it's a small rental building. You call Con Ed. You yeah. call the fire department. You get them there. And I say you get out. And you get the hell out of there. Same time. And I think another thing that's really important since we're on this subject and there's a lot of things that could go in the same kind of bucket or scenario as the gas, people need to have evacuation plans. Mm -hmm. If you've got small kids, if you don't, if you've got roommates, if you don't, if you live by yourself, if you have animals, if you've got a cat, you've got a dog, you need to spend the time to cover yourself because anything could go on Mm -hmm. and you need to, you know, have your plan in place. Yeah. I actually sold an apartment to a family a couple of years ago on the third floor of a pre-war building and they bought these custom-made rope ladders nice. that yeah. they have rolled up under yeah. all the kids' beds. Smart. That and they practiced and and the it's doorman beautiful. the doorman saw them coming out of the the windows. <laughs> on one like, of the what is going on right what now? in the world is but you know it's pretty That's, smart. Well, it was smart. is pretty funny, <laughs> but it's funny, but it's really smart. It it's was like smart. Be, living in California and not yes. having your evacuation plan, yep. not having your kit in your trunk, not having the trash can that you're supposed to have in your house. And you know, I lived there in '92 with the big Northridge quake, mm-hmm. wow. and everyone I knew who wasn't prepared. I kind of was all the time. Boy, did they hook it up or they moved. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you just never know. All right. Moving on. A study released just yesterday found that New Yorkers in market rate apartments for rent shell out nearly 60% of their income on rent. 60% of their income on rent. 60%? Correct. Street Easy's rent affordability studies show tenants who live in market rate units have a median rent to income (laughs) ratio of 58.4% nearly double the national average, okay? Why do so many New Yorkers sacrifice just to live here? I mean, come on now, think about it. 60% or more of your annual... Let's just income. meditate on that number for a second. I, it's, it's unbelievable. Really, 60% of your really income. Crazy. I read this yesterday. I couldn't believe it. Yes. That mm-hmm. is incredible. I think there's a lot of sacrifices that you, you do make living in the city. Yes. But bonuses that you get, right? If you live in the suburbs, mm-hmm. we're talking about driving. You have to pay for your car. Yep. You have mm-hmm. to pay for insurance. You yep. have to pay for gas. You know, in New York, we have- Water. Yeah, water. All that stuff <laughs> right. built in. Heat, hot water. You shovel your own snow. Yeah. Yep. Heat, hot water. All that's included, right? In that's most right. In most rental units. And all mm-hmm. you have to do is buy a I think believe they just raised the, the, the metro price to $116 for a, a, a 30-day pass. When is for that $116. End? Well, yep. You know, that's that's way cheaper than a lot of these other add-ons that you have living in the in the country. So, yeah, the rent is a little bit higher, but you're not spending as much money 
um, as you would, you know, living outside of the city with a and car. the rent's just getting higher and higher. Yeah, but that's easy true. pass is fourteen dollars a day if yeah. you don't have. I mean, not easy pass the bridges. If you don't have a discount thing. But I just think that if you want to have any kind of a social life, you know, living in this town, and we all know that living in Manhattan, in New York City in general, is a big sacrifice as much as we love our town, and no one loves it more than I do, but it's a big sacrifice to live here. I just get concerned when I read things like more than 60% of your income is going just to pay your rent, nothing else. On the heels of that, living with roommates is particularly – is practically a rite of passage here in New York City. It often begins – with far too many people sharing too little space and ends up with a move into an apartment of one's own or with that special someone. But with rents reaching new highs, single 20-somethings are not the only ones looking for someone with whom to share the rent. Couples, couples are living with roommates even after they've tied the knot. Wow. Wow is right. You know, I'm in disbelief with this one. I was reading this over the weekend when I was preparing for the show. I I mean, you know, here again, spending more than 60% of your income on rent. Now, couples who are getting married or living together under whatever, you know, uh, couple law they want to use, and they're still sharing apartments with friends. What is that about? Actually, I saw this starting to happen at the beginning of the economic downturn, and friends of mine who were old married couples whose children had left, they had lost their jobs. And they were having a hard time making the rent or making their maintenance or something. And they started taking in roommates. Right. And these are not young kids either. These were people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And that blew my mind that they were people I was friendly with taking in what sounds like borders, if we're going back to the history of New York, to make ends meet. Or they began the Airbnb mm-hmm. thing. A lot that of people wasn't around well, at the a time. Lot of people right. are doing yes. that. Yes, okay. but they are. But I mean, a lot of people no, no, but have this is done permanent. that now. But this, is, this was permanent. Right. They were taking in permanent Understood. roommates to live but there. But I mean, and other but people have was, increased yes. their income by, you know, who've lived alone, their yes. kids have gone, and now they're renting out some of their rooms. Well, that's another topic for another show. I know. Because that's long. Coming, yeah. you're coming, right. coming up very soon because that is a very, very good topic. And, and, some, and for some people, rather, to make ends meet. That's what's happening. All right. So here, where do the New York City's nickname Gotham come from? You know, those of us out out of the city hear this and say, all right, why is Manhattan called Gotham? Well, here it is. The answer is not from Batman. It's not Batman. (laughs) It's not Batman. Creators of the comic book series were originally going to uh, name its location, this location, Civic City. Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Capital City. (laughs) No. Atlanta. Coast City. City? I don't Uh. think so. But. Then flipped through a New York City phone book, does anybody even do that anymore, Uh, and found Gotham Jewelers lending the inspiration to the newly named, nickname rather, of Gotham for New York. Absolutely interesting. I like when people refer to my town as Gotham. Yeah. It's very – Superman. Did yeah. anybody did anybody Google it and find out all of the historical information no. about the term Gotham? There was so much information. Let's pick this back up and all of us do it. It's fascinating. Well, 19th century writer Washington Urban was oh, the first to apply the nickname Gotham to New York City um, back in 1807. And this is what I was reading. Yeah, Go so, Nile. Yeah, he was Yay. putting his finger on the particular blend of uh, lunacy, willing, willingness, and bravado that characterizes New York City. There you and, go. And that's where it was later adapted <laughs> by, uh, yeah. by, by Gotham in the Batman series with Frank Miller. There you go. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. All right, listen, we're out of time, everybody. That oh. is Good Morning New York for this week. I know. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time Live. Someday we're going to say we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Good Morning New York. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for being here today, and we'll see you next time. Bye. 
Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.